we still need data. But the type of data that we collect for our models is different. We're not trying to train the neural machine translation model. What we're doing is letting Google, Microsoft, DeepL, Systran, all of the good engines out there improve on their own like they do. And we just benefit from that. They get more fluent every day. We're not training the model to properly translate these terms. We're telling the model in the moment. You know what? This source content contains these two problematic terms. This is how we want you to translate those terms. If something is working well, well, then just use it. And then build something on top of it to make it even better. That's the message today from our guest, Heather Shoemaker, the CEO and co-founder of Language.io. Tune in to learn how her passion for languages led her to learn how to code and eventually co-found Language.io. Enjoy this episode. Heather, welcome to the show. Thank you, Albert. Listen, before we dive into Language IO, we do want to give our audience a chance to know you outside of the world of work. And to do that, we are going to start with the lightning round. The lightning round is brought to us by Salesforce Platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Heather, this is where we ask you questions outside of the world of work, as mentioned before, so our audience could get to know you a little better. Are you ready? I think so. All right. We did some fun homework about you Uh and learned that you walked away from the Air Force at the last minute because there were no women pilots at the time. That is true. What did you choose to do next? Well, I got my option was to join the Air Force. They were ready to sign me on. I found out that I couldn't be a fighter pilot at the time. Top Gun was a really popular movie. And, you know, (sighs) that's probably my inspiration. And when they said no, I thought that was ridiculous. So I accepted a running scholarship to a small liberal arts college in Oregon. What could have been? What do you like to do for fun outside of work? Oh, is there an outside of work? Um. <laughs> no, because you're a co-founder. You're a founder. So uh, for you, no. <laughs> exactly. Right. Right. OK. Back in the day, I used to do things like rock climb and ski and do a lot of reading. I am still an avid crocheter, I will say. Crochet. Yes. I love to crochet. What is the fanciest thing you think you've crocheted? the fanciest thing. Okay. I'm not saying I'm a good crocheter, so this is not going to sound impressive because I just, the fanciest thing I've ever crocheted was a relatively complicated shawl that had a cool pattern, but yeah, I'm not an impressive crocheter. I just enjoy it. Hey, listen, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. I have a lot of hobbies. I'm actually not good at any of them either. So Hey, whatever makes us happy, right? (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. We're going to dive into the company in just a moment. Your company's all around language. Yeah. When did you first study a foreign language? You know, I did not grow up in a multilingual household like a lot of people who become linguists. It was when I was a teenager in high school and I started taking French and realized that speaking another language is kind of cool. Like, I felt like it was a superpower of sorts, right? And I thought, wow, I could expand on this superpower and learn a few languages. And so... I got pretty good at French, by the way, I'm horrible at French now. Um, (laughs) And then I went on to learn Spanish and Portuguese, and I still do speak Spanish, Portuguese, not so well. But yeah, it was just this cool thing to be able to communicate with people who didn't speak my language. And I just got such a like serotonin rush from 
being able to engage with people that normally I would never be able to have a conversation with. It seems simple, but it's, it's not. It's a pretty big deal. Yeah. Growing up, I was a child of immigrants. So my first okay. language was Chinese. I was actually taken aback when I was in elementary school and I found out people didn't speak other languages. I was like, oh, I'm, I'm different. Like it was, it, was, it was surprising to me. Yeah. It's crazy that more people don't, in my opinion, especially in the United States. Then you meet kids from Europe and they're like, they all speak multiple languages. Oh, I know. <laughs> it's pretty bonkers. It's pretty standard. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Heather, I want to say thank you for joining us today on IT Visionaries. You know, you kind of gave us hints and clues of your life outside of work. The fact that you you were wanting to be a fighter pilot, the fact that you love the outdoors, the fact that you are a runner. So we know you love adventure. You mentioned the serotonin rush of getting in speaking a foreign language. Tell us about Language I.O. What does it do? And how did you come up with the idea to start this company? Sure. So I will make this as succinct as I can. But like I already told you about learning languages, that was a cool superpower. I wanted to expand on that. A lot of people who are graduating from the linguistics program at the University of Washington, where I got my undergraduate, were going into interpretation, right? They would just go straight into a role as a live interpreter. And I did that for a while. And I found that being paid to help somebody else speak another language one person at a time wasn't that rewarding. So I actually was an interpreter, a Spanish-English interpreter for the um, Immigration and Naturalization Services for a while. And that there was some reward in that helping people like um, political asylum seekers from Central America. That was rewarding. But then I would do other more mundane interpretation work that, that wasn't. And I thought, this isn't a long-term career path for me. What else is out there? And I always liked math. I know that's weird, but um, I did. And I remember listening to an NPR show. This was a while ago. And they were talking about how the next big thing is software development. And if you want a good career, go learn Java, the programming language. And I thought, oh, okay, that maybe is some, it's another language, right? Like, I wonder how similar a programming language is to a spoken written language that helps us communicate. And so I started doing a little research got into a graduate program at, at CU Boulder in Colorado and found out that I loved writing like code as much as I liked speaking other languages. It's another superpower. And um, so that's kind of how I got into coding. And my first job out of grad school, I was able to combine my love for languages, spoken, written languages with coding in the field of software internationalization, which is this practice by which you take source code that was designed to support a single language and you make it capable of supporting many languages so that the software UI and under the covers is Unicode enabled that will display these labels in multiple languages. And I got pretty good at it. And you know, when I st I was initially with a startup and I was sent all over the world helping these big companies internationalize their source code. So I would help them refactor their code base. It was fun because I got to travel and it combined, you know, languages with coding. And what I discovered during about a decade as an internationalization globalization engineer was that while helping a company globalize their software was pretty straightforward. I mean, I'm not saying it wasn't hard, yeah. but it's not rocket science. It's totally doable. The aspect of globalization, the challenge that companies faced for which there was no solution was in the realm of multilingual customer support. So let's say you've taken your software, it can support any language. 
Now you actually have to provide customer support services to these people in China and Russia and Europe. And if you don't have support agents who speak the language, you were kind of in a pickle. Yeah. And so, you know, how could I help solve this problem? And I eventually wound up as the um, head of product for an LMS, learning management system in Denver called eCollege. We successfully sold eCollege to Pearson. I had shares and that kind of set me up into a position to, to do my own thing. And it, I was able to start actually building a solution for this multilingual customer support problem. And that was the, the birth of Language.io. Yeah, no, this is awesome. So I have familiarization with what you were working on, which was localizing products. The, I mean, like you said, the biggest challenge we had was possibly, uh, you know, in certain languages like German, Yeah, the character length is so much longer that right. we had to like refactor like some of the UI because the buttons didn't translate well. So you've done this. I've been a part of it. Yeah. But only on the software side, kind of like what you said, which was, it was yeah. not a big, big challenge. We could take our screenshots and how we did it was we would take a screenshots of our um, of the interface and we could go take it to a translation service and say, hey, listen, tell me what these words mean right. in these different languages. And there might be some minor UI adjustments uh, so that we could fit the buttons and the screens and stuff like that. But what you're talking about is significantly more complicated where we didn't have an answer. I'm telling you right now, like, so when we were, and this is 2016 even, yeah, the software company I was a part of, we had we had users in seats in just about every country because we were a social media management platform. We basically did not have North Korea and we didn't have Cuba. Every other country we had, someone wow. was sitting in that country using that product. That's crazy. When they did what you just said and submitted support tickets, we had no way of addressing it. In fact, we actually figured out a way to have like, hey, you guys, as in the customers, like Viacom was one of the customers. It's like, you guys need a center of excellence. So like there would be like a European center of excellence with it. We would train the European center of excellence how to use the platform. And then they would then be in charge of the support tickets. It was crazy, right? Yeah. And it was frustrating for our users because like you just described, which would be, hey, if I'm, I don't know, if I'm wherever country I'm in and I'm doing, using this application, I submit my support ticket. Now I have to wait for the COE to address it. They might not know the answer. They're going to talk to the vendor. The vendor mm -hmm. tells them back the answer. Then they can, mm -hmm. it was, it was a daisy chain of service tickets, if you will. It's not scalable, right? You can't do that for every language. It was a problem. Exactly. So one of the things I think about the problems that we had, which you possibly are on the path to solving was, you know, how did, how did you first think like, how were you going to engineer a solution for this? Because obviously we, this show's uh, created in English. We can assume most of our listeners speak English, but Anyone who's ever tried to learn a foreign language, like there's connotation, there's verbs, there's conjugation, there's there's tone, all these different things, and then and then the way people type is not consistent. No. How how did you start thinking about how to solve this problem? Because there's a lot of companies that are attacking this, and it's it's curious to hear like your approach. Sure. So, I mean, the biggest challenge with multilingual customer support is that the content that we're translating is conversational content. It's messy. It's full of slang and abbreviations and misspellings. People aren't careful with how they chat or email. And just to be crystal clear here, we weren't starting with voice. We were starting with e-support. Okay. So your standard e-support channels will be chat, tickets, so on and so forth. And while there were good machine translation, automated translation solutions for structured, well-written content, these machine translation engines 
don't do very well with this messy user-generated content. Exactly. Just in general, but then add the complexity of a company's product names or industry jargon, these terms that could be translated in different ways depending on the industry. So let me just give you one really tangible example. Well, we have a number of customers in a variety of different market verticals, but let's take the example of an online gambling company mm. and a video streaming company. I can't name names necessarily, but you you get the idea. There's lots of online gamblers who are going to place bets on players in certain sports. So let's use the example of somebody who's trying to place a bet on a player. And this person is in Spain, so they're speaking Spanish, and they're going to um, need to converse with the support agent about a player. Now, the way we translate the word player into Spanish varies depending on whether we're talking about a basketball player or a video streaming player. It is mm. a completely different word. Now, if you just run it through Google Translate, Google Translate is an awesome engine, by the way. I'm not, um, no shade on Google Translate. That's one of the platforms we integrate with. Right. But it doesn't have the context. If if somebody says, I'm trying to place a bet on a player, well, bet, okay, I, I um painted myself into a corner there. Let's just say they're they're using the word player, but Google doesn't know whether it's an online video streaming context or a gambling context. It's going to use jugador because more, more often than not, you're talking about a sports player, right? Mm -hmm. So jugador is great for a video or for a, um, a basketball player, but if it's a video streaming, you want tocador, completely different word. Google, Microsoft, all of the translation engines, general engines have no idea which one to use. So they use the most frequently requested based on context, right? So this is where language IO comes into play. We decided to A, not build our own machine translation engine. There were lots of good ones out there that were gonna provide a general fluent translation. So we have this aggregation layer where we're going to use our machine learning to intelligently select the best engine from a fluency perspective. Today, hmm. in this moment, what's the best engine for English to Spanish, Spanish to English? And so we have lots of data. I won't go into the supervised, unsupervised learning that we feed back into our system, but we can pick the best, the most fluent engine for that language pair. That does not solve the player problem or the messed up content, messy UGC translation problem. That's where we have a layer on top of it that's going to normalize the source content first. So it's easy to translate, easier anyway. And then whenever we onboard a customer, if they have a glossary of problematic terms, we can load that into our platform and impose that company's preferred translations on top of the engine we select. So if a company has lots of product names that they never want translated, or maybe it's a gaming company um, we work with lots of gaming companies and that's the most fun because they make up words that literally have no translation. Yeah. And they have to white lo label those words for each um, language that they support. So they have to invent translations. We load those preferred translations into our platform and we have unique ways of telling the engine that we select. This is how I want you to translate this Magic the Gathering card, Eldrazi Devastator into Chinese. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so... um we do this real time and we also will, we have adaptive learning. So we will improve translations over time with NLP techniques that we've developed that will detect problematic terms. And if they reach a certain threshold of usage, 
we push them in front of human linguists that work in our system, and those linguists will automatically push the preferred translation back into our system. So that's kind of a lot of information. You know, when you described that use case, though, it became quite obvious to me because, uh, you know, the the team at Mission busts my chops a little because I do enjoy some online gambling. Oh. I tend to wager only like a dollar a game, so it's nothing like serious. Okay. But, and I'm controlled like in that regard, but and like the most I'll bet is like a spicy chicken sandwich which is five bucks. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, but what you just described is I can see that because this is a time sensitive problem. If I mm-hmm. make the wrong move, there's a window of time where I can retract my wager or whatever the case may be. And, or if I, if I think something's happened and of course it's very time sensitive, of course, like once the game has begun, like you can't, you can't ask for something back. So I could see the frustration from players and users around the world coming in and saying, Hey, I need, I need support now. Like you can't, yeah. I can't do what I did with in 2016. When you were developing the system, you know, you had mentioned before that you had experience localizing software. Is that where you discovered the gap, I guess, where you said, Hey, certain engines are better than others. Is that, is that the first time you saw it? Or did you discover this gap a little later down the road? It was later as the, the internationalization globalization engineer, I just recognized that there was a problem that needed to be solved. Like companies didn't know what to do with customer support. They were having to staff up support agents all over the world and it wasn't a scalable solution to the problem. So I started thinking about, well, what if we could enable a company to use their monolingual English-speaking customer support team, usually English-speaking, sometimes another language, but to provide support and e-support in any language. So suddenly these knowledgeable but monolingual support agents could chat and email in Chinese and Russian and Spanish, you name it, right? That would be pretty cool. So once we, um, I got to a position where I could start building, writing the code to solve the problem, I did go down the path initially of doing what everybody else in the industry does, which is to train one instance of one neural machine translation platform. So let's say you're going to select Microsoft, right? Microsoft allows you to train up neural models. The problem with that is it requires massive quantities of human translated content with which to train for each language pair. And it's super time consuming. It's expensive. A lot of the folks who have this problem don't have massive quantities of human translated content to even train with. So, you know, my small team and I put our heads together and we're like, well, what could we do? There's my cat. (laughs) What could we do to make this a more scalable solution to the problem? And we thought, well, what, what if we just used the existing general engines that are the best engines? Pick the best one for the language pair from a fluency perspective, and then do something on top of it, pre-processing, post-processing, so we could spin somebody up quickly and um, still solve the problem and still get an accurate translation out there. And that's kind of how we came up with our solution. It was while we were building it. How quickly did customers and other people see the effectiveness and results? Because it feels like it would be pretty quick because you're working from you know, like we talk about with different AI and ML engineers, they talk about how until you have a data model that has enough data to support what your hypothesis is, it doesn't really ne- doesn't really work, mm-hmm. right? So like they talk about like identifying objects and pictures until you've taught the model what the object is, it doesn't really know how to find anything. And I would assume that this, the, the methodology you had taken would lead to results quickly. Or how did that how did that fare in testing when you first started saying like this is my hypothesis I'm building this a solution for it mm-hmm. how quickly were you able to say like okay there's this seems like a 
good option. And then how quickly did a customer say like, oh, I agree with you, Heather, this is a good option for me. Yeah, really quickly because we circumvented that data problem. Now, don't get me wrong. We still need data, right. but the type of data that we collect for our models is, is different. We're not trying to train the neural machine translation model. What we're doing is letting Google, Microsoft, DeepL, Systran, all of the good engines out there improve on their own like they do. And we just benefit from, from that. They get more fluent every day. And our ability to spin up a customer, I mean, get them up and running in 24 hours with the best fluency possible, still promising to translate their problematic terms exactly how they want them translated every time, because we're not training the model to properly translate these terms. We're telling the model in the moment, you know what? This source content contains these two problematic terms. This is how we want you to translate those terms. So that's that's something that we can just force on the engine. But then in the background, we're constantly running our own NLP mechanisms to detect new terms that we think our customers will need a special translation for. So we do adaptively improve over time and we do have our own neural models, sorry, not neural models, machine learning models to improve translation quality, but it's outside of the standard NMT training process. So yeah, I mean, to answer your question very quickly, um, I could name like one of the largest social media platforms in the world uses Language.io and has for years. And once they realized that we could give them fluent translations and force the engines to use their product names and properly translate their product names, they were thrilled and they've stuck with us as have many. Now, this is pretty amazing because I'm thinking about all the use applications where you like you mentioned before, like if I'm a service agent. And I only speak one language, but I'm still really good at service. You still want yeah. to use me on a global scale. Exactly. Every inbound ticket is, you know, in, in something I can read. And then every outbound ticket I'm sending through in one language is instantly translated to the receiving person. Mm -hmm. Is that how it's working today already? Where if I'm a, let's say I'm an employer and I'm a global employer and I got service agents all over the world where it's like, I don't actually need a like Spanish speaking quota. I don't need a French speaking quota. I just need the best. And then I'll let the tool help me help the best deliver service to everybody. Absolutely. So it enables them to just say, you know what? I already have this trained group of customer support agents. Yeah, they only speak English, but that's fine because language IO sits right in the CRM where they're already working yeah. and automatically translates their email responses, chat responses, chat bot responses into the customer's language and back. So then I'm assuming this application is a, there's an integration piece to yours as well. Meaning like you had to build connectors into all the different service tools because every company is going to have a different service tool. Like there's unfortunately, you know, that's, yeah. that's the reality of it. Is that, is that how it works? It's like, it's a plugin or some type of integrated service that, so that it lives in my service agent software. You got it. So now obviously we cannot provide an amazing integration with every client relationship man right. management platform that exists. It's, it's a highly fragmented industry, but we do lots of market research and we know what the, um, the CRMs are, which CRMs have the largest market share. We've targeted those CRMs like Salesforce, Zendesk, Oracle Service Cloud, et cetera. And we have really slick integrations for all e-support channels. So, you know, if, if somebody uses Salesforce as their customer support solution and they want their support agents to be able to chat and email, they want to spin up chat bots and provide knowledge-based content in every language. We have 
really slick integrations for all of those channels for Salesforce, for Zendesk, for Oracle Service Cloud. There are some CRMs for which we don't have an integration. And, you know, a lot of big companies build their own and we can't do a lot about that. But we do also expose APIs because the core of our offering, you know, while our integrations are awesome, the best that exist, our intelligence lies in the server, in our conversational B2B translation platform. So we expose APIs that allow companies to hit that engine from anywhere. What other industries could this technology expand into? Because there's customer service, right? And that makes uh-huh. total sense. Uh, there's yeah. software-based customer service. It's going to be, uh, I mean, I'm assuming it's going to spread everywhere because like, uh, let's say air travel was a, oh, yeah. <laughs> would be a great one to have my service uh-huh. agent be able to chat to me and, and, and understand everything I say without going through like ridiculous cues. What other places could this go? Well, really anywhere that a company needs real-time translation services. It might be your user reviews on your website. Mm. It might be internal communications. Maybe, you know, you're, you're a global company and your employees are all over the place and you want them to be able to Slack with each other in any language. You could plug into our APIs there. But one tangential market where we're really focused today would be the conversational AI market, mm. which is a little bit different. But um, nowadays, everybody kicks off their support session with a chat bot. So there's definitely overlap between the multilingual customer support space and the conversational AI space. However, conversational AI is much bigger than just customer support. So we're already launching integration, say, into Salesforce Einstein bot. So you can spin up a chat bot in just one language and then boom, our app makes your chat bot multilingual just like we make your support team multilingual. And now that we're kind of engaging on that end of the conversational AI market. We're thinking, well, there's lots of opportunity in just the digital assistant space outside of customer support because we've done lots of research here. And what we've discovered in our research is that everybody underestimates how difficult it is to spin up an AI-based chatbot. You have to define all of this intent data. Let's say you have... Oh, yeah. You know, a thousand ways, a thousand different types of questions that a customer might ask, right? For each type, let's call that an intent, you have to define hundreds of utterances. How many ways might they ask that question? Now, once you've done all of this work in English or just your your base language, you're faced with the daunting task of replicating that work in every language that your company needs to support. And research shows they're just like giving up the effort because it's so much work. So we're there, right? Ready to say, you only have to do that in one language. And boom, our technology is ready to make your conversational AI solution multilingual. So we're, we're, making, we're making AIs, robots multilingual, just like we can make humans multilingual in a nutshell. Listen, I can't wait because this is a topic that's come up with a, a couple different guests who represent different customer service technologies or mm-hmm. chat AI technologies. There's a lot of different things. And I always use this use case, which I, I'll still say to this day, and until a company can solve it, and you know, I hope yours is the one because I can't wait. But like I'll give you an example is like in accounting. So we use we use QuickBooks and the word refund. So I was like, okay, I want to issue a refund. And it kept the knowledge base kept thinking I wanted a refund. It's like, I don't want a refund. I want to issue a refund. Issue. <laughs> and it wasn't that I didn't know how to, Right. I didn't know all the steps because I had issued a refund in QuickBooks, but the person didn't actually get their money. Mm-hmm. And I was like, this is what I want to figure out. But I guess like you just said, 
that word overlaps too many things. It couldn't figure out the intent. And I was trying to type it, explain it. The chatbots kept coming up with my, uh, the recommendation would be like, oh, you want a refund. It's like, I don't want a refund. I want to give a person their money back. Right. That's just one language. Yeah. One language and we can't get it right. So once a company gets it right in one language, they're just like, oh my gosh, that was so much work. Yeah. I am never doing this in 20 languages. And so they don't try. Yeah. And so, yeah, we're kind of, we're there. We're ready. Yeah. Yeah. It didn't get resolved until I got a person on the phone. They're like, oh, you, you want to give a refund? Like, yes. Yes. <laughs> <All right. laughs> yeah. That must've been so frustrating. I feel your pain. It was. I mean, but that, that use case that happens probably more like you suggested, probably more often we think where all it takes is for a, like you said, a knowledge base is most knowledge bases are based on frequency, frequency and likelihood. That's the accurate representation. Yeah. So we can't quite understand what you're trying to say. It's basically going off keywords and saying, Hey, in this search, I established this as the most commonly addressed problem, which like you said, nine out of 10 times, it's going to be right. But that's Mm -hmm. that one tenth of a case that causes all the frustration and, and pain. You know, you mentioned something about conversational AI, and I think it's coming this way, but I'd love to hear your opinion. Do you see a place where we, where like, it's just in every service? So like, like this microphone company, if I have a problem, I would use its chatbot, but I wouldn't use its chatbot to type. I could just like say like, Hey, update my firmware. Oh yeah. And I I mentioned this microphone company, which is sure it's a big company, but even their knowledge base, you know, they're not a big enough company to invest enough tech as of today mm-hmm. to do that. And there's a lot of examples of this, you know, maybe this mouse company or maybe this, you know, I don't know why I would want to get chat support by my pen, but I might want to read, <laughs> want a refund. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> but all these different places is that, do you see that was where the consumer marketplace is going for her help and service? Oh yeah. There's no doubt whatsoever. I mean, even today, something like, I'm not going to get the statistic exactly right, but close to 50% of, of consumers prefer to interact with a chat bot, with a robot, right? Maybe because it's less stressful to just interact with a bot as opposed to a human. So A, people prefer it. B, it saves the company a lot of money when they don't have, have to hire humans to staff up every support request, right? So it's absolutely the future. And even for smaller companies, it's within reach, especially if they go with more of a rules-based chatbot that's not AI-powered, mm-hmm. because you can spin up a rules-based bot very quickly to at least field the the low-hanging fruit, the easy-to-answer questions. And then as you get more sophisticated, as your company grows, you have the resources to turn that chatbot into a true AI-based chatbot. It's more expensive. You know, it requires all that intent and intent data. But yeah, that's there's no doubt whatsoever that that's where the industry is headed. There are so many conversational AI platforms out there today. And the last thing I wanted to mention there, one that we're partnering with provides a solution to big companies that allows them to basically never put a human in front of a consumer. Now, there are still scenarios, even through this technology that I'm talking about, where you do need to pull in a human, but they're pulled in on the back end of the bot system. So the human is helping the bot Hmm. and kind of guiding it, kind of adjusting its path when it's not doing the right thing. But the bot is still interfacing with the customer, not this human who's behind the scenes helping the bot out. So that's pretty interesting too. 
further supporting what I tell my kids is they ask me, what kind of jobs will be in the future? It's like, you got to be able to fix robots, whether fix it's robots. D- digital robots or physical robots. If you can fix robots, you're going to be okay. You're going to be okay forever. <laughs> Until the robots can fix themselves, then that's going to be a problem. Right. Well, there's that. There's that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, what you just described is exactly what I think most of us consumers can feel, which is, of course, the bigger companies we mentioned before, airlines, mm-hmm. rental cars, you know, huge, huge companies, big software companies, they often have better support systems because it is expensive, right? Yeah. And the one thing that technology teaches us over time all the time is it's going to get less expensive, better AI models, more frictionless pathways. So you already mentioned your like... I mean, I think it's brilliant, right? You close the gap of saying, I don't have enough data to say, I know what people are saying to be like, I'll just go into someone else's translation dictionaries and you leverage those and figure out the best ones. I think those those steps are going to make it incrementally more cost-effective. And hopefully we get to a point where this service capability goes to every business because I'd love that. I mean, even like getting a table at a local restaurant can be a pain in the butt. Yeah. I mean, think about it. Like you call, I know all of us have felt it. Like the um, the phone line's busy. Why can't they take a reservation online? Seriously? Because they can't afford a digital system like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, for yourself, the company you started, you embraced remote work right from the gate. Uh, so Language IO is based in Wyoming. Uh-huh. I got to ask, do you have other engineers in Wyoming or no? <laughs> Everyone knows somewhere else. Yeah, that's a great question. We do. In fact, we have a really close partnership with the University of Wyoming Computer Science Department and I, where I'm on the advisory board. And we get great engineers out of Wyoming. And in the early days of Language I.O., we recognized we were going to get all of our talent in Wyoming. That's just an impossibility. Right. But we would get as much of our engineering talent here as we could. And we, we still do have our HQ here in Cheyenne, Wyoming. And in the early days, we all did go into the HQ, the engineers who were nearby, But since the early days, we've also had folks all over the world and we just recognize this is, this is the future. There's don't fight it. You know, we've got one of our best, most senior engineers in Beijing. He is a critical part of our engineering team and it's never been an issue for us. And even when COVID restrictions loosened up, we got our heads together and we're like, should we all go back into the office? Those of us here in Wyoming, we're like, no, no. Why would we, when we save so many hours in the day, not having to get into the car, drive to the parking garage, park, walk to the office, like it's so much more efficient to just work from home. So why would we force everybody to go back? Yeah. And now I got to ask, I'm assuming the answer is yes, that you eat your own dog food, meaning like you don't require your Beijing engineer to speak English. He's just typing in Chinese and it's translating for you guys all the time. Are you guys communicating through your own tool for all the software solutions? So that is a great question. We got lucky. The Beijing engineer speaks great English. So okay. it's not a problem we, we had to solve with Robert. Hi, Robert. But we do eat our own dog food in the sense that we do have our apps plugged into our CRM, ready to chat and provide email support, translate all of our knowledge base using our own solution. So we do have that going for us. There you go. <laughs> there you go. Well, Heather, it was awesome having you on the show. Thanks for explaining what you see the future of service at. And, you know, I think it was brilliant what your decision at the very beginning was like, hey, how do I get access to as much data as possible? I think for a lot of we, you know, we always say our audience is split into two, two real types, right? Like there's going to be tech leaders and then emerging tech builders. Mm -hmm. And sometimes the answer to a really challenging question is like creating a great solution that bridges 
bridges uh, two solutions together, which is, I think, what you've done really well. And uh, it was fun hearing about it. And, I, and like I said, I hope you continue to succeed because I want my life easier. I need this technology everywhere. And, uh, you know, we wish you the best. And thanks for sharing your story. Thanks, Alberto. It was super nice meeting you. Thanks for having me. 